Smith issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 259 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I just want to give a shout out to my mum's husband, Brian, stepdad hashtag two, who is right now part of a seven van convoy driving aid supplies to Ukraine. Does that not earn him hashtag one? I just feel it's more chronological. But what a guy, right? Yeah. Maybe I'll make him a badge with number one stepdad on when he gets home. (laughs) Come on, Brian. Uh, Is your mother worried? Oh my God, she's having kittens every minute of every single day and has informed me she will be doing until Friday in the kind of text message that said, you can comfort me and I want this, but I will continue to be like this until he's home again. Fair dues, really. Fair dues. He's 76 driving to a war zone. I'm worried. Oh my God. I, I think I'd rather drive to Ukraine than have my mum worry four days <laughs> by a text message. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I bought a thermal jacket in a heat wave. So was Zeitgeist. Yeah. Why? Well, I'm going to Iceland oh, yeah? in the winter and I'm going to need a proper decent coat. And it occurred to me the other day that perhaps the best time to buy it was during the summer because it would be cheaper. And so I had a look around and they are all very expensive. So I bought one on Vinted and it arrived on Saturday. And I thought, I've got to try this on. I have to try this on because I just want to press the button so that woman can have her money. You know, I don't want to be the asshole that leaves someone desperate for money. And the idea of putting it on makes me want to vomit so hard. It was awful. So I put it on and I zipped it up and I was like, yep, yep, done, fine, received. And then I screwed it up in a ball and it's currently at the bottom of my wardrobe. Did you take all of your other clothes off first? (laughs) And I ran around in the street naked for four hours. Classic Saturday. I'm Jen Offord and yesterday I met a bearded dragon. Was she nice? I think she was a he. Uh, Yeah, it was a slightly strange situation we were walking back from the chip shop we decided to get a uh, chip shop lunch to eat in the garden a picnic in the wild you saw one in the wild yeah well lady coming out of her house like two doors down from us and uh, i think lyra must have gotten a bit underfoot or something we were like, ooh, ooh, ooh. and i was like oh she had a bloody lizard on her shoulder she had Amazing. a beady dragon on her shoulder she was just walking down the street and i was like oh and lyra, i said lyra that that lady's got a lizard on her shoulder look and she was like what? And so the lady came over and she was like, this is, I can't remember his name, it was something like Smog or something like that. And she was like, this is Smog. <laughs> and I was like, oh, she's right. so a bearded dragon. And she knelt down so Lyra could have a good look at it. And Lyra sort of recoiled in horror. She was a bit frightened. So I was like, you know, all right. She was like, you can give him a stroke if you want. You can't touch him on top of his head because he's got a third eye on the top of his head, she said. Anyway. Yeah. Hannah's face right now. Uh, <laughs> too many eyes. He's got an extra face egg on his head. I felt similar, Hannah. An, an extra eye that you could accidentally touch. Mm. No, thank you. Isn't Smog the dragon from The Hobbit? Yes. Oh, maybe that's what it was then. I don't know. But yeah, she was just like, okay. So I, I gave him a little stroke and he had like little spiky bits on his neck and she said, they look sharp, but they're not. So I was like, all right. I accept the challenge, neighbour. <laughs> gave him a little stroke. It just felt like like rubber. Yeah. They're cute. It's fun to see Liz is on her back walking down the street in Harwich. Why not? I saw one on the tube once. Clearly they're a kind of like lizard pet that you can take yeah. out and about. And yeah, yeah, there's a guy just on the tube with his lizard on his lap. Quite big. Quite quite a chunky bearded dragon. And then when he got to their stop, the lizard just got in his backpack and they got off. 
I've seen people do that with cats on the tube, but never, never a lizard. Clarky would not be having any of that. I bet Peggy and Joan. I mean, Joan doesn't leave the house, but Joan wouldn't like it. Peggy would be full on in people's bags. She would be making herself. She'd be scratching <laughs> some guy's legs. Just like, what? Yeah, she's too badly behaved. She might enjoy it, but I would never take her. <laughs> Coming up, I chat with writer Ruth Kelly, whose debut thriller, The Villa, is a sharp social commentary on the dark side of reality TV, as well as a total page turner. Yes, Love Island, we're looking at you. We're looking at it, we're not watching it. No. Difference, big difference. Crucial. Mm. Our Hazel Davis chats to one of her absolute faves, singer and songwriter Eddie Reader, about her role in the stage version of Brokeback Mountain. Who doesn't love Brokeback Mountain? People who are dead inside. There's a lot of them about, though, Hannah. Not us, though. We love Brokeback Mountain. There's good news and bad news, as ever, in Journey Off the Blocks. And shall we play a little global thermonuclear war, Professor? <laughs> All right, Whopper, what could possibly go wrong? In this week's Rated or Dated, we watch 1983's War Games. But first, women's rights, high office shite and the Isle of Wight. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. <laughs> Cue sting. I like the rhyme, but I'm pretty sure I won't like the news. <laughs> <laughs> you won't. <laughs> Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. You'll find no lazy fucking grifters here. So I've seen the headline, but mm. I have not read the article. So can you tell me and indeed the listener what you are referring to, please, Hannah? In, in perhaps the most surprising bit of news in all of this story is that I actually read this in a newspaper. Wow. In an actual... I was at someone's house. I was browsing <laughs> through an actual newspaper and I read that Spotify have parted ways with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the entire world's got an opinion on why, including a guy who's quite happy mm -hmm. at Spotify, who, uh, on his own podcast, called them lazy and fucking grifters. Mercy, I know. I mean, I will say, 12 podcasts doesn't seem like much for the huge amount of money that they were being paid. No, but I suppose there's a premium on getting highly sought after individuals who people are always going to be interested in hearing what they have to say even if it is just to go well fuck you I hate you but I think there has to be a way to monetize it so mm. you, there actually has to be content right that people yep. are listening to in order to monetize it mm -hmm. Spotify it seems to be financial I would say they seem to have spent a lot of money and not made a huge amount of yeah. money I think they've spent a lot of money on podcasts and not yes. made a lot of money yeah. Specifically, but obviously they've spent a lot of money on mm. this particular yeah. podcast. Yeah. They also spent a lot of money on Joe Rogan. And it's interesting that obviously they've held on to that because that, and they held on to that despite people kicking mm. back at it. So it seems to me that that's a financial decision. So I'm sure this is a financial decision as well. But anyway, it's interesting. Yeah. I will say hashtag not all podcasters, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so. Let's start with a mixed bag of international news when it comes to women's rights. And why not begin here, in this green and pleasant land? <laughs> At the weekend, thousands of protesters marched in London calling for the decriminalisation of abortion after the conviction of a woman for ending her pregnancy beyond the legal cut-off of 24 weeks. Carla Foster was sentenced to 28 months in jail, having obtained drugs to end her pregnancy at 32 to 34 weeks. 
The mother of three misled BPAS about how far along her pregnancy was during lockdown in 2020 and got the abortion pill under the government's Pills by Post initiative because jailing her was seemingly more important than the care of her existing three children. But okay. Yeah. As MP Stella Creasy told the gathered crowd at the weekend, there have been 67 legal prosecutions of women over the past 10 years under the Offences Against the Person Act of 1861. Now, I'm sure our listeners know this, but just to be clear, in England, Scotland and Wales, the 162-year-old law banning abortion was amended in 1967, legalising abortion with an authorised provider up to 28 weeks, which was then lowered to 24 weeks in 1991. In Northern Ireland, abortion was decriminalised in 2019. Come on now, let's get that done here. Yeah. Meanwhile, over in Poland, women were also out on the street demanding the legalisation of abortion after a pregnant woman died in hospital in May. Last week, Poland's patients' rights ombudsman ruled that the John Paul II hospital quite (laughs) violated the rights of 33-year-old Dorota Lalik by failing to tell her that her life could be saved through an abortion. She died three days after her admission. Lalik's husband, Marcin, told Polish media... No one told us that we had practically no chance for a healthy baby. The entire time they were giving us false hope that everything would be okay, that in the worst case the child would be premature. No one gave us the choice or the chance to save Dorota because no one told us that her life was at risk. In 2020, Poland's Constitutional Tribunal ruled that abortion due to fetal abnormalities was unconstitutional, leaving doctors in fear of a prison sentence. Marta Lempart, founder of the All Poland Women's Strike, said, All pregnant women are in danger the moment they're referred to a Polish hospital. We are afraid of all doctors because we don't know which ones will act to prevent their patients' death. So, this is all very depressing slash rage-inducing, but didn't I promise a mixed bag? Mm -hmm. I did. And so to Japan, where something resembling progress is happening, largely as a result of some hard campaigning by Japanese women. On Friday, Japan's parliament passed legislation to redefine rape as non-consensual sexual intercourse, removing a provision regarding use of force, and raised the age of consent from 13 to 16. This follows four years of protests by the Flower Demo, a movement that protested sexual violence and acquittals in rape cases. The legislation also extended the window of time a survivor can report a rape from 10 to 15 years, and further legislation against upskirting means it can now be punishable by up to three years in prison. Well done, Japan. I mean, I feel like they could move further yeah. on a lot of those. Yeah. Well, certainly on the 15 years. But yeah, 13. Yeah. Wowzers. I, I, don't, I mean, just to talk very briefly about Carla Foster, the idea... That you would like, you would imprison, not just convict, imprison a woman with three children already, who has taken, I would say, you know, maybe extraordinary measures under extraordinary circumstances. Like of all the things you want to go after, you want to go after this woman. Of all the stuff that could be going to court, that action yeah. could be taken over. This is the hill you want to die on. Mm. Fuck you, man. Fuck the system. When you look at stuff like the the conviction rate for rape and sexual assault, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but like, 
fucking hell. There's there's no excuse. There's no fucking excuse. I think what's interesting is that nobody really appears to be attempting to make any hay out of this at all. Not the pro life mm. and not the pro-choice camp neither because everybody knows everybody seems to work out this is like an extraordinary situation in which something has happened that there's nobody on the pro-choice side is arguing that this sort of thing should be like you know the norm everyone's no. saying this is a this is an outlying case this mm. is an outlying case in this situation i mean i haven't even really noticed the anti-abortion mob weighing in much on this story because it's just a really sad And three more children are suffering now. Yeah, it's tragic. And it makes me shake with rage. Anyway, speaking of rage, Hannah, guess where where it's been? A busy week for bad news, apart from, like, everywhere. Apart from, like, possibly (laughs) maybe Japan. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of places to choose from, so I'll just cut to the chase and tell you. It's the Home Office. The Home Office. Yeah. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, has asked police to ramp up the use of stop and search powers. The idea behind this, allegedly, is to prevent knife crime. But who are those powers primarily used against? Well, statistically speaking, you are seven times more likely to be stopped and searched if you happen to be black rather than white. The Home Secretary's response, well, black men are disproportionately affected by knife crime. And I am sure that it is nothing at all to do with recent and indeed historic findings that the Metropolitan Police, to target one force, is institutionally racist. Or poverty, or education, etc, etc. I can't see what could go wrong with this policy instruction, can you, Hannah? Um, I mean, no, it all seems like it's relatively simple and straightforward to me. Mm Mm-hmm. And in the week that we celebrate Windrush Day, that is 75 years since the Empire Windrush docked at Tilbury, Essex, Braverman is at it again, according to The Guardian. The newspaper reports today, as in Monday, as we record, that following on from the scandal which saw hundreds of Caribbean immigrants in the UK wrongly targeted by immigration enforcement, that the unit tasked with reforming the Home Office in its wake has been quietly disbanded. Why is that, I hear you ask, given that five years on, only 60 of the 1,275 people to have applied for compensation because of the scandal have actually received payouts? Payouts to the tune of £360,000 of the estimated £200 million set aside by the department. Wow. Well, Braverman thinks it's time to move on, according to a That's fine, yeah. Okay. Yeah, according to a leak quoted by the newspaper, she's fine with it. So let's just uh, let's just knock it on yeah. the head. The Guardian reports that, despite analysis published in February, that only eight of the thirty agreed reform promises had been met, thirteen partially met, and nine either not met or just dropped. Two London-based teams working on reform commitments and engagement with those affected have been told that their work will end on July the 1st. A third team have been offered the opportunity to merge with a Sheffield-based compensation team. So that suggests to me that they'll deal with the compensation claims, but everything else can just fuck off. (laughs) Let's not learn any lessons. Let's not do anything else about it. Oh, my God. The word opportunity in that sentence is just, it makes me feel a bit sick. Offered mm. the opportunity. And that is probably <laughs> yeah. how hey it's been put to them as well. Would you Have like we got an opportunity for you? Oh, Jesus. Yeah. When do we get to vote them out? Are we nearly there yet? Are no, we we're not. We're not, sadly. Do you want a bit of good news, Jen? Yes, please. I would like some good news. Well, let's 
get aboard the news ferry to the Isle of Wight. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> where fossilised remains have been discovered to be an entirely new species of plant-eating dinosaur. It's been named Vectipelta baresi after Professor Paul Barrett, the head of fossil vertebrates at the National History Museum. And it's the second armoured dinosaur to be found on the island, discovered in rocks in the Wessex Formation, dating back between 66 and 145 million years. It's quite a wide thing, but yeah. it was a long time ago, so I'll mm-hmm. give them, I will give them a greater margin for error. The new species is apparently most closely related to some Chinese ankylosaurs, suggesting these dinosaurs moved freely from Asia to Europe during the early Cretaceous period. Just having a wonder? Yeah. And then they got to Europe and then they were sent back to Rwanda. That's what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Some racist British dinosaurs sent them home. Go home! Trucks (laughs) driving around. According to researchers, the Wessex Formation and the Isle of Wight are hugely important, that's their words, to understanding more about how dinosaurs became extinct. The discovery will be housed at the Isle of Wight's popular dinosaur museum and parts of the dinosaur will be on display over the summer. School trip to the Isle of Wight then? Yeah, Mickey's just going to join a random school trip to the Isle of Wight. (laughs) She does love a dinosaur. She really does. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when no one, and I mean no one, is surprised to find that people (laughs) are sexist. I'm not even surprised to find that they are mad sexist. Hannah, do you want to guess how many people are sexist? I mean, not the exact number, but the proportion of people who are sexist. I mean, if we went with the exact number, I'd need that big margin of error going on again. Is it... 75%. 75%. I appreciate that you've that you've gone to the trouble of, of doing that, Hannah, because you already know because you've read the same article as me. <laughs> well, I was thinking not all, not, hashtag not all men, yeah. uh, and hashtag but also some women. Some women, yeah. 75%. Yeah. It, it's a good guess, but yeah, for anyone who hasn't seen this article, the answer is actually 9 out of 10, according to a new UN report. I make that 90%, Hannah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's good maths, Jen. Good Thanks, maths. mate. But not just that they are sexist. Specifically, they hold biases against women. And guess what, Hannah? We've literally not progressed in ten years on this score. <sighs> and you and I, the same age. Let's look at some of the specifics, shall we? Half of the people surveyed across 80 countries believe that men make better political leaders. And this is a tricky one to disprove using contemporary examples in the UK, to be fair. I mean, I see you're Boris Johnson and I raise you Liz Truss. But uh, yeah, I would say that's that's more symptomatic of having a party full of self-serving wank bags in power than the specifics of anyone's sex, right? (laughs) 40% of respondents thought that men made better business executives, to which I must ask, how would you know? (laughs) As of last October, 96% of CEO positions held within Britain's biggest companies were held by, that's right, you've guessed it, men. Yeah, 
I've thought hypothetically about having a woman in that job and I've decided she probably wouldn't be any good at it. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Don't like any of that. And okay, go home. You're drunk, a quarter of the respondents who say fair play is cool if you want to beat your wives. Oh, my God. Well, speaking of the findings, Pedro Conceição, head of the United Nations Development Programme, said... My expectation was that we would see some progress because nine out of ten, I mean, how could it get any worse? I mean, don't, seriously, please, Pedro, do not (laughs) risk, do not tempt fate by saying shit like that. Unfortunately, he added, doing this exercise has been an experience of shock after shock. (laughs) Not for us, Pedro. Not for us. Oh, dear God. Once again, I've got nothing to say, I don't think. Unfortunately, they are their own people. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by longtime journalist and writer for TV and other people, Ruth Kelly, who has just written her first thriller and total page turner, The Villa. Ruth, hello. Hello. Thank you for welcoming me on the show. Thanks for having (laughs) me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go with that. Ruth, you have got a whole string of Sunday Times bestsellers under your belt as a ghostwriter. Why have you kept us waiting for so long for your debut thriller? I never really thought about giving it a go. Maybe I was, perhaps, honestly, I wasn't confident enough to write my own book. And when I was ghosting, one book led into the other, and then I'd find another one, and I was on a bit of a train, and then they were doing better and better, so I just didn't want to get off the train because it was going really well and then there was a bit of a gap that led to me to write my own book so I did this book between ghosting projects and the villa so yeah it was a bit of a gap that enabled me to write my own book and then and then when I did it I thought I really love this (laughs) (laughs) this is me I found my calling yeah (laughs) well I'm pleased about that and listeners when you read it you will also be pleased about that but before we get to the villa I'd like to know what it's like to be a ghostwriter because that is very much goodbye ego, right? In a way, I do get my name on the book. On the inside page, I'll always have my name. So it's not like I'm completely obliterated. (laughs) And (laughs) I think there is a sense of, you know, being invisible. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a ghost. That never bothered me, actually. Never. No, I, I, I just saw it as that was the role that you take on and it didn't bother me in the slightest. If you're someone who really wants your name out there, ghostwriting isn't the job for you. They're 100% not, no. Is it a lot of interviews, which obviously as a long-term journalist, you'll be really au fait with? Yes, it's quite um, an interesting process. There's what I think are two ways to be a ghostwriter. One is where the publisher has a person they want to publish their book for. You know, I'm suggesting here a celebrity is the most likely person. And they need a ghostwriter quickly to produce this book. So they will do something called a beauty pageant. It's known in the industry where they, (laughs) you can probably guess what that means. So they have the subject of the book in a room and they'll bring in ghostwriters one by one, like a beauty pageant. And you have to do a twirl and introduce yourself. (laughs) No, not the the twirl bit. But yeah, you sit down and and you have a limited time with that person. And it's all about forging a connection quite quickly. That person is looking to connect with you. They'll probably have their agent in the room too who might whisper in their ear, this is a good match. And from then, you're on a kind of waiting to hear if you've won. (laughs) So you're kind of waiting by your phone to get that call. So that's one way of getting a ghost book. It's competitive. 
the second way, which is 90% of the books that I've done are this way, where I've, as a journalist, found the subject matter because it's interested me, because I think it would be topical, because for years writing as a news reporter, I just had this natural instinct to knowing what might be a good story. Mm -hmm. And then when I meet that person, I could think that will be a book, like The Prison Doctor. I came across Dr. Brown in a social situation, and I instantly knew that Dr. Brown would be an amazing book, The Prison Doctor. So then you, you get that person to agree to doing a book with you, and then you do a proposal, and then you pitch it to the publisher, and then you, I guess it's a, a bit of, you know, who's going to take this book on. And then once you get your book deal, then there's a really lengthy process involved. And first is interviewing that person, because obviously the content of the book is through really, really detailed interviews. To write an 80,000 word book, you really need details about someone's life. It's not like a, a newspaper article. Some ghostwriters do this by phone, but I find that there's a certain series of things that I do that I know that will get the most information out of people. And one of them is being with someone in yeah. person. I 100% will always book a hotel near where that person lives. It's better to go to them because they'll be relaxed in their own environment. And then I just bring out my digital recorder and I annoy them for like one to two weeks, <laughs> following them around, badgering them for questions and recording it all. And there's a process to this. Often it starts off quite difficult because people aren't used to being asked questions like that in that level of intensity. But as the time goes, like pretty much by day three, I was like, they start to relax a bit. And then I tell them how the best way to answer for me is in anecdotes, telling mm-hmm. descriptions where they're quite vivid because to make the book interesting, you often have to visually describe the situation and the feelings and emotions. So by the end of the experience, they're just, you know, whistling out exactly what I want and I don't need to even edit it. But at the start, it can be very jumbled. And some people have incredible memories and some people have terrible memories. Mm-hmm. And it's your job as a ghostwriter to try and work out how to read the situation, how to to sort of bring out memory. Sometimes that can be, some people really benefit from going for walks when they interview because it relaxes them. They're not looking you straight in yep. the eye when no you're going. Eye contact, yeah. Yeah, no eye contact. And I've, I found that, you know, going or going for a drive around an area where they may have grown up really prompts memories if they're not great with their memories or things like that. Or we bring out the photo album. It's often a highly emotional experience because I would say nine out of 10 times they often cry because it's for a book to get a book deal for autobiography. It's often a quite emotionally charged book at some point. And so I would say it's like an intense therapy session for two weeks. And often I feel absolutely dead at the end. Mm. And I know that the person involved also feels really tired. But I've been through it quite a few times. So I'm expecting, but they, they're not expecting it, even if I've warned them that it can be really emotionally charged. When I moved, transferred between writing stories and features for newspapers, the ghosting, it, it, you know, it shocked me how intense this process is. The writing bit is a piece of cake in comparison <laughs> to the interviewer. Yeah. Maybe it's 50% there was and 50% colour from knowing their personality. Mm-hmm. And the point of a ghostwriter is also to be their voice. So you can fill in blanks, you can say things, and they're signing it off. So they go, yeah, I did say that. And that exactly sounds like me. And and that's what you are. You're them for three months that you're writing it. But the whole process takes a bit, like maybe six months to do. It's, it's fast. You know, I've written a book in six weeks because there's been a short Wowzers. deadline. It's, it's intense sometimes. 
I feel really privileged to be talking to the Miss World of ghostwriting. This is incredible. <laughs> I did lose out on a few pageants, I'll have you know. <laughs> so look, Ruth, I have to choose between a lot of authors when it comes to our limited interview slots on Standard Issue. And so I tend to read a couple of chapters before booking in a chat. And that was my plan with the villa. And then uh, I looked up and I'd finished it. Paradise, mayhem, death, ever-increasing spirals of manipulation and reality TV. Without spoilers, obs. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the villa, please? It's about a reality TV show on a private island where there are 10 contestants and they all have secrets of their own. A journalist goes in undercover and she isn't expecting what happens. Everyone gets messed around with. And it's quite explosive, quite scorching, a bit saucy. And it makes you question, I mean, that's the point of the book, to make you question reality TV in a whole. I think that was the main point of this book and how people are treated on it. That wasn't a whole new world for you, was it? Uh, not completely, yeah. Way way back when, um, I did this reality TV show called Upstaged. I worked with Endemol, who made Big Brother. <laughs> and I came onto the show as a writer for the show. It was an experimental show they were doing. It was set up in Bristol City Centre, which is where one of the Endemol offices are. There's London and Bristol. And it was the first time they were doing, um, quite similar to the, to the villa, where the audience, the viewers, were online voting for who should go head-to-head in this competition. And it was two glass boxes in the city centre where the contestants would go into the glass boxes for six hours straight and they would compete against each other, almost wow. like goldfish bowls. Yeah. And you could walk past them as well as it being live-streamed on the on the internet. And then towards the end of this process, it was then on BBC Three with Scott Mills presenting. My job was to watch the two live streams and write about what was happening every 20 minutes. So I'd have a headset and I would jump between these streams trying to work out what was happening, who was doing what. And then I'd have to write a story about each glass box, which was for the online community that were voting for who would go next. And you could go in for, I think it was four times of six hours. So if you got voted in for the next day and the next day, the whole maximum would be four days of six hours. It was very fun because the whole Big Brother team was working on this. It was a huge show for Endemol. It was an experimental show. And everyone was having a bit of a jolly on this. And I was in a porter cabin with the writing team on location. <laughs> but it was my first experience of reality TV. And I think there was there was definitely this, um, this moment when I suddenly had this, ah, oh, moment, this is what's going on. Mm. Well, for me anyway. And that's when a lot of the people that wanted to go in these glass boxes were hopefuls you know people who wanted to break into them to become a a singer or an actor and they had a little skit that they were doing and they would go into these glass and they would start performing their songs it didn't have to just be one person in the box it could be like but it was a small box but it could be a whole you know a, a whole band that was going in and then obviously they didn't have enough material to last probably beyond two hours max so then that's when the reality TV came in, but they didn't, they wouldn't realize that. So either they would just sort of, you know, sit on the floor and just like twiddle their thumbs or some people would start doing silly things. The lightning bolt moment came when someone said, well, this is just like Big Brother. And I thought, well, it, it is because now, now what you're doing beyond your material 
is what makes the reality TV and what I'm writing about. Because I was part of this machine too. You know, I was watching them thinking, what they're going to do now? Now they've run out of stuff. And it was, um, yeah, it was an eye opener. And I think it 100% influenced my book because I, I'd been part of that. So I could see, you know, ways that you can make TV, reality TV. That was just, I mean, this might not have been what the producers had in mind, but for me, that's that kind of was showing up for me because I was writing about what they were doing and they were saying the stuff and I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, totally. And obviously you were in your porter cabin, they were in a glass box. We're in much more glamorous location when we're in the villa where I should add there are absolutely no regulations governing what's happening. So it's like, see you at Ofcom, there's nothing to stop the producers and the contestants doing whatever they want. And one of the contestants winds up dead. Obviously, this is a fiction, and even though it's based on, like, you've got this insider knowledge of reality TV, but there have been actual deaths, suicides by reality TV contestants. And a huge question throughout your book, which you touched on earlier, is sort of who is to blame when things on reality shows spiral out of control? So I wondered, and obviously it's a big question, you've written a book about it, do you think that damage is just sort of baked into the reality TV recipe? How, how do you mean baked in? As in that that's just what to expect? Yeah. Now. Yeah. I mean, there has been a lot of tragedy. That is what partly inspired me to write this book. So I wanted to write a book that was a thriller, but also had a talking point because mm-hmm. I, I felt quite strongly about what's going on. And I think, sadly, a lot of the people, a lot of the contestants that take part in reality shows, the ones that make good TV are often the most vulnerable because yeah. they're they're huge extroverts and but this personality that they have might come from you know maybe they're bipolar or whatever it is that brings out these things in stressful situations Mm -hmm. and so I think um the sort of vulnerable people often take part in these shows that's why I chose three points of view the producer the contestant going in who was an undercover journalist and the goggle box star viewers who are taking part and I wanted people at the end of the book to sort of question when things go wrong in these kind of shows, who's really who's really to blame? Is it the contestants? You know, no one's pushing them into these shows. They don't have to take part. Is it them for wanting that fame or their, their hunger for fame, whether it be, you know, later on on Instagram and sponsorship deals and whatnot? Is it the producers for pushing them perhaps too far? Or is it is it the viewers who are egging them on and voting? Is it I think it's a it's a massive machine. The whole thing is not cut and dry. And that's what I really wanted to get across. I'm not sure if that's answered your question, though, but... I'm going to be honest with you, Ruth. It's interesting because you've answered my question. I think you have answered my question, but you've answered it with my next question. So that was (laughs) brilliant. (laughs) Because I love isn't the right word, but I really appreciated the chapters from the viewer's point of view. Because it is too easy, I think, to push all the blame onto unscrupulous, money-hungry production companies and TV execs or fame-hungry people who want to take part in these things. But in the villa, the viewers have the voting rights we're used to and then some. These powers have been extended. And you very much capture how reality TV stars, for want of a better word, are seen by huge swathes of viewers as fair game. Fair game for behaviour that just would not fly in the real world. Yeah, I I wanted to get that across really quickly. So one of the first viewer chats is the just for people listening, the, every chapter, the, a viewer chapter, is a different person from across the world who's tuning into this reality TV show. And I wanted one of the f- very first ones to, to have the words 
it's not like they really matter, is it? And I, I was definitely putting that in because I think that's what people do see them as fair game to laugh at, to sort of, you know, to poke fun at and just as a bit of like evening entertainment for, you know, from a hard day's work. They can check in and then they can just as easily check out. Mm-hmm. In the process, they've done some voting that affects the people in this show, in the reality show. Then um, they can easily just wash their hands of it when they close their laptop down afterwards because they don't know these people. And they, I think there is this feeling that if someone wants to take part in a show like this, they are fair game because they don't have to go on the show at the end of the day and maybe think, well, you know, maybe there is a feeling that some people think they're asking for it. Yeah. I might be wrong. Well, no, I, I think wrong, but... you said earlier it's a machine. It's that perfect storm, So that, it, which is useful, I think, for the TV companies because you can't just lay culpability at their door. There, there are other people involved lots of other people involved and i feel like we've had way too many teachable moments the latest figure i could find for the number of deaths by suicide for reality tv stars is a staggering 40 that's worldwide but that is a a huge number and yet there remains this huge appetite for this kind of program nearly every other program is reality telly and so it has to keep up in the ante because they're all in competition with each other and it doesn't just dehumanise the contestants, but it also, and you capture this so beautifully, dehumanises the viewers. So yeah, again, another big question. Why do you think people love this shit? What are they getting out of it? <laughs> well, first, I think it's escapism. It's like, it's the same as switching on Netflix after you come back from a tough day. I think once upon a time, people would read books. But now I think it's easier just to scroll through your Instagram feed or or tune into a reality TV show, or watch some TV. But I think reality TV, particularly because it's a exaggerated form of real life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's entertaining. Perhaps people, I'm just guessing here, but if you're seeing, if perhaps you're going through some bad time in your own life, and then you watch this absolute hell breaking loose on this show, and some really, you know, big drama that's seeing people go through some emotional angst maybe makes you somehow feel a little bit better about the crap that's going on in your life I don't know that's just a guess but (laughs) I think there is a sense of oh well okay well that's you know that's even worse than what I'm going through or uh, maybe they can find similarities in it I I think the sense of voyeurism the surveillance is also strong I think I think people like watching people yeah and the schadenfreude or I wouldn't have done that and kind of you can get a sort of superiority I guess yeah I do things differently and you're like would you it's it's weird to me and I think again the villa gets this across really really well and I, I would always say I don't watch reality tv programs yeah, I love a bit of Grand Designs, which is indeed a reality TV program. Right? But I don't watch you Love Islands or Big Brother or anything like that. But at the same time, the, the villa really captures this whole idea that that's not real either. And yet people believe it's real. Yeah, I think people get um, extremely invested in it. And then you've got things like the Daily Mail that are egging it on with these in their column <laughs> at the, you know, the side that's yeah. just saying who's kissed who, who's done, you know, they're, they're kind of amping up the rivalry between people in Love Island there's part way through they um they there's this bit I think it's called Casa Amor where they really shake things up and people have been coupled up and then they split everybody up I think this is right and then new contestants come in and spice things up so if you become attached to someone in the first few weeks or week or whatever it is and then 
that person has ripped from you or you're worrying what they're doing in the in the other house now you've been separated that level of anxiety that oh what's my partner doing but when I I don't know what's going on here's something that everyone can probably relate to somewhere or most people can and yeah. And perhaps it's that relatability or that anxiety that re- I don't know. Well, that's particularly a, a spicy moment in the show where everyone loves to tune in. And maybe that says something about, you know, what interests people. I think the character of Laura, who is our reporter in the villa, is really, really clever because obviously she goes in and she's not her because she's undercover. And yet you're like, yeah. well, no one's really them because we perform so differently when we're being watched 24 hours away from everything we know and love. You know, in the same way you perform differently if you're in the middle of a glass box in Bristol. You're not going to be yourself. You're certainly not going to be your best self, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I think everyone wears masks. In fact, that might even be a line in the book. I'm just trying <laughs> to think that might... I, yeah, I think she points... Um, I'm not being on, you know, everyone wears masks, including myself. But I don't know sometimes in, in these reality TV shows if they go in with a mask on and then it drops. And I wonder if actually sustaining that mask, when they when that mask does drop is where the entertainment comes in in terms of what mm. producers are looking for. I'm, because I don't think you can keep that up for X amount of weeks. And it's when your real personality starts to come through or drama starts happening because you're pressure points are pushed then you start to see the real you I, I actually think it's almost impossible to keep that mask up which is what happens also in my book you know when things start changing at a really rapid pace for my protagonist Laura things that she wasn't expecting because she is actually well I don't want to say too much but no things spoilers. start happening for her and no spoilers and because she realizes that she even states at the beginning of the book people don't you know really know who I am and she's worried that this will come out when she's in a show like this which it certainly does it certainly does it certainly does <laughs> okay i feel like the more we talk the more there's a risk of spoilers so yeah, i listeners, wondered if i'm doing that <laughs> the villa is published by pan books and is out in paperback tomorrow june the 22nd perfect timing for it to slip into hand luggage because it is a cracking holiday read ruth is waving it about in front of me like i haven't already torn through it <laughs> ruth where can people follow you to keep up with what you're up to next please so you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Ruthie Writer, that's R-U-T-H-Y, and then Writer after it. Um, and I, you know, really love to welcome these followers. So please come and follow me. Amazing. And thank you so much for chatting to me. Oh, thanks for having me on. Hello, I'm Hazel Davis and I'm here talking to one of my musical heroes actually, Eddie Reader, who is currently starring in Brokeback Mountain at the Soho Place Theatre in London. Good morning, Eddie. Good morning. Lovely. Love and that, as they say in, in the <laughs> Scots Gaelic. Madame va. Morning good. So you are, as I said, in Brokeback Mountain at Soho Place. So you're in the midst of the run. It started a couple of weeks ago, is that right? Yeah, it started a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I was kind of like grabbing onto a running train actually at that point. So I, I had no idea what it was or how to be me within it. I just decided that I would say yes, which is bizarre. <laughs> I don't know why. I think I was just sitting around and I had planned, I'm doing a PhD yeah. and then I planned to write an album and I had three months stretching into August and I thought great I'll, I'll get to know my cats more and I'll, I'll play with my piano and 
And these two dudes phoned me up, um, Jonathan Buttrell, the director, and Dan Sells, the mm -hmm. songwriter. And they both were like leaning into the Zoom going, will you do it? Will you do it? And I'm like, what do you want me to do? And they said, we just want you to be you and come down and, and throw your hat in the ring, you know? And so you're uh, playing the balladeer. Yeah. I was actually interested in my acting chops because uh, I did some acting with Michael Boyd in the Tron in Glasgow for The Trick Is To Keep Breathing, which was a Janice Galloway play mm -hmm. years ago. And then I also did a bit for John Byrne. But essentially, I was playing myself. And then again, they, they said to me, Jonathan and Dan had said, we just want you to bring the thing that you do. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, look, if you're looking for somebody that sings, it's got to be, forget it. That was 30 years ago. I'm not that girl anymore. But, you know, I was willing to express that to them quite forcefully. And then they turned around and said, no, we've been to all your gigs. We know exactly what you do today, now, at this point in your, well, middle-aged life. Middle age is a little bit optimistic at the moment, but certainly... <laughs> They knew who I was and what I do. I like to encourage the emotional content behind every choice that you make. And and I think that that's what they wanted for the balladeer, this person who was able to describe the complex emotions that the beautiful boys in the play cannot express. <laughs> They're just working poor. They don't know what's happened to them. It's like a bolt of lightning. They have no idea how to cope with the fear that surrounds them and the conditionings of the world, which tells them they're wrong at all times. Yeah. And it could be with any any relationship you have. It could be the, the relationship you have with a lover, regardless of their bodily costume, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Whatever form the soul is in, the boys have fallen in love with each other, and they don't know why. And many, 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 many people fall in love with each other. They sometimes express it sexually, they sometimes don't. But the essence is that they love each other, regardless of what's going on with their bodies. And I see that in these boys. I think Annie Prue is the inspiration more than anything else. So Annie, Annie Prue, the writer of the novella that they're playing. Yeah. Based on, yeah. I was given it mm -hmm. um, and Jonathan wrote in it. And, and it's 58 pages. <laughs> so it's, it's not a long read, but... Then I was interested in why she wrote it. I mean, she's an 85-year-old writer now, mm. but this is in the 90s, so she would have been whatever it is, 20 years younger. But certainly um, there was a time when I was touring in America in the early 90s, and there was a report of a, of a fella, 21, 20-year-old boy, who someone suspected was gay in Wyoming, mm. and they pistol-whipped him, and they left him to die. And I think that Annie was inspired to write what I think is definitely a, a, a narrative about fear versus love. So if you're a child growing up in this world and anyone says, you're not really supposed to feel that, it's always the ego and it's always evil. And I know that for a fact as an old woman now. So there was times in my past where I felt love for something that I wasn't really allowed to feel. And I never, ever questioned it. I used to think, well, maybe that's the way we're all built. We're supposed to, you know, sacrifice. We're supposed to, you know, suffer mm. like Christ on the cross. But we're not, I don't think. I think the point about the crucifixion is, is redemption. And the redemption 
is in this play if you see them as who they are, which is human beings with souls who connect on a very visceral level and the rest of the world is wrong, basically. I'd like to go back to when you said you used to feel that fear. How did you, was that just growing older that stopped you from feeling that fear or realising that we're not hardwired to do that? How did you come to that realisation? I'm a student of A Course in Miracles and I believe in the law of attraction, non-dualistic religion. I come from a background and conditioning of Catholicism and Christianity, of course, Judeo-Christianity, but I've kind of rejected that for a much more open, modern aspect or a new leading-edge way of looking at our spirituality. And I think this world is a bit topsy-turvy. What we're told we're not supposed to do, feel, love, uh, is is all upside down. Um, Topsy-turvy is the way I see the world now. And um, I noticed that when I was asked to do this play, I had to look at all the prejudice that surrounds this idea that two human beings can't fall in love mm. because of whether they've got tits, fannies or willies. You know, it, it really is ridiculous. <laughs> and the shape of your nose whether you've got a neck, whether you have three arms, two arms, two legs, whatever, you know, whatever that is, is just body centered. And it's nothing to do with connectivity. And I just discovered that through my life that I needed to uh, appreciate that I wasn't made wrong. (laughs) There's no judgment really in that way. And anything that is judgment is generally to do with ego, generally to do with power and control and trying to manipulate the way you see the world and as a child I grew up with very open-minded parents but still around me was restriction and uh, the 70s I survived the 70s you know it's a as a teenager I survived when I look back now with these eyes I, I see that that was quite a difficult thing for a woman to do Mm, yeah sure okay tell me about your PhD so you were about to start a PhD or you are going to do your PhD where where are you with that I was told by my professors Una Fee hi uh, <laughs> in Caledonian University uh, that I could do six months of reading anyway so basically when I I said to them look I'm doing a PhD I can't it's on an archive that that I discovered that I was left behind I was going in a skip And then I discovered that a lot of it was historically uh, valuable. And I, I, I enjoy looking at the rivers, which made us Mm -hmm. to now the archive I found was all revolutionary history, but secret revolutionary history, because a lot of the people that were involved in revolution, the men and women, they went to their graves with secrets. And I was funnily enough, left with this archive and I didn't know it was valuable until I took it to the university and they said you know there is no real account of of these times which is uh 1900s through to 1930s yeah so I'm I'm kind of trying to get either a creative PhD together where I I I involve music musical content Mm -hmm. and discovering why people will take on the might of the way the world thinks it's like identity things now are the kind of revolutionary movements of the jazz age, the Charleston mm-hmm. and then the punk age and now and then in the in the revolutionary age, the industrial political revolutions. All of it is about trying to push us forward. And um 
if we just accept that that's that's we're at the leading edge and we have to accept that Piers Morgan and all that, he just has to accept that he is flotsam and that he has to just get out of the way if you can't lend a hand for the times they are changing. You know, you have to just appreciate that the kids will fix it if we don't. That sounds really fascinating. The fact that you said it could be a musical kind of, um, you know, a creative PhD, because that sounds quite similar to the Burns collection that you did and things like that. That's a, it, it, you know, that's a, yeah. you, you like to kind of present a history musically, which is really, that's really fascinating. Is that something that you always do when you do a musical output? Is it, is it always a body of work rather than a series of songs? It's always just the song or the lyric first. I find myself caught up in the wave of it, whatever it is. I'm always interested to know what song's going to come out of me next. I don't have a clue. And then I, I kind of take that on stage. And it was kind of interesting doing this play because it was a discipline I I had no experience of. Mm. Because when I go on stage, I don't really know what I'm going to sing until I get six inches from the microphone. And I never do sound checks. I never rehearse. And the boys that I play with, I've been with 15, 20 years. So they know they know how the flow goes. If I'm in the flow, I'm a contented being. And when I'm not in the flow, I'm not a contented being. So this play was like, you have to sing at this point, oh, yeah. and then you have to make it last this long, and it has to be this song and this emotion at that point. So this is kind of good. I'm like harnessing my wild horse, mm-hmm. which is kind of what Brokeback Mountain is all about. It's about um, the fact that these boys or these people, Alma included, the wife of Ennis. Um, I mean, these actors are masters. Emily Fern and, and Mike Feist and Lucas Hedges. And then you've got Martin Marquez and Paul Hickey. Mm-hmm. And you've got uh, Sophie Reed, who plays Lorene, the wife of Jack. When I watch them, I'm like, oh my God, they're masters. Just masters. And I feel so, I don't want to get in their way at all, mm-hmm. but... Jonathan, in his genius, wants me to get in their way because I have to kind of break through whatever block is blocking them to the love and the truth of it all. And the truth of it is the shame and the guilt comes in to try and stop you all the time. And uh, I, I find that it's a great discipline for me because within the first week, I'm like, I can't do this. I can't have an AMD going one, two, three, four, in. I can't do it. I can't do that. I'm not that type of person. I'm I'm a free horse. I'm a Palomino. I'm I'm kind of on the range and I'm wild. And he said, you've got to put yourself in that jail. And then you're breaking through the um, the barriers of in that jail, which is what life is. We yeah. have to accept the challenge and then get through it. And that's kind of the attitude that I have when I'm, I'm kind of a horse when I'm sitting there <laughs> wanting to wanting to rear up and go when there's fear in the room, you know. Does that mean that your performance every night must still be different though? Presumably you're still you're in that jail but you're doing something different every night or has it become more similar? No, well this is I would say this is the first week where I know that I'm in at six o'clock. Before I was in it, one, doing notes and kind of working out where my body is on the stage because I, I kind of transform at the end uh, into one of the characters. That was amazing, working with the dialect coaches, Ben and Mary. And um, 
and the and the actors themselves, like Martin was great. Martin Marquez is is just this guy who who comes up and he goes, "This is what I do if I want this out of myself." And it's a revelation to me. It's different every night for me so far. Mm. I haven't got to a point where I'm like, oh, you're <laughs> off or anything. This is absolutely, when I'm watching them, I feel like I'm in the moment at all times. So I'm watching Mike and Lucas interact. And there's a moment where I think I'm seeing every amazing actor that's ever been mm. come into their bodies. These young men. They're in their thirties and mid twenties, and and all I can do is love them. They're 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 showing me that the world is all right. You know, mm -hmm. these people to be that age. I mean, I just remember being that age myself and not even knowing how to cook spaghetti. <laughs> Never mind <laughs> deal with the emotions that this play presents us with. And it is Chekhovian. It is like Brecht. It's a it's. For me, there's people laughing at places and I don't know why they're laughing. Mm. Um, but the script does bring that out in a lot of repression. That Sometimes there's nervous laughter. The bit when Alma, that's Emily Fern, discovers that the guy she loves, who loves her, mm. also loves someone else. And mm. the fact that we live in a world that tells us you can only love one person, mm. which is ridiculous. I don't know why she just didn't go and have a threesome. <laughs> Especially when I see those guys, I'm like, wow. <laughs> it's a different play. Um, so, and you're on tour. Yeah, you? it's a different play. It's a different play entirely. Oh, you are... would be in Soho too, I think, probably. 1978, Soho, yeah. <laughs> and after after this is done, you're, as well as your PhD, you're on tour as well, aren't you, in September onwards? Well, that'll be interesting. I wonder if I'll do any of these songs. They are beautiful songs. Uh, yeah, and was... I'm not, I mean, one of them is just, oh, oh my God. Oh, day by day, I watch your face, care and devotion, want you this way. Now I feel us torn apart, because I'm not alone. In sharing your heart. That's Alma's song. Oh, oh my God. Oh, it breaks my heart every night because I have to sing it to Old Ennis, played by Paul Hickey. And Paul Hickey's a, a total drunk, wasted. His life is wasted, which I think is what fear does to human beings. It, it leads you to a wasted life mm. where you either give up through suicide or you give up through drinking, slow suicide, which is alcoholism or smoking yourself to death or. All those things are slow suicides. And I think that um, that's what fear does. And that's when fear gets you by the balls, women and men. And and I think Paul Hickey, when I'm singing that to him, we're both ghosts in this, in this play. And we're both looking at these children be dominated by fear and the tragic end of it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. It was really lovely to meet you and to talk to you. And I hope the rest of the, the run goes well and, um, and the tour and everything else. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks.
Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we fire an ace at the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. First of all, what a lovely time the Brits had in Nottingham at the Rothsay Open last week. Not in order of importance, just to get the men's bit out of the way so we can crack on. Congratulations to Andy Murray, who won his second back-to-back title following on from success in Surbiton. It's always excellent to see him doing well, especially in the run-up to Wimbledon, which gets underway in a couple of weeks. Congratulations also to Katie Balter, who beat Jodie Burridge in an all-British women's final, winning her maiden WTA title and shooting up the ranks 49 places to within the top 80. She's already the British number one since Emma Raducanu slipped down through the rankings, but the good news is, though Balter is a regular in qualifying, if she can stay within the top 100, she'll automatically qualify for Wimbledon this year. Burridge, her opponent in the first all-British tour-level final in 46 years, also shoots up 23 spots to sit just outside the top 104 at 108, so she's in with a chance of automatic qualification herself now, fingers crossed. If you're wondering who the last British women to face each other in such a setting were, it was Virginia Wade and Sue Barker in San Francisco back in 1977. Barker won it. I can neither confirm nor deny that Cliff Richard was present. Okay, some bad news in the middle of this shit sandwich, which is that the all-female motorsport series, the W Series, has entered administration after it failed to secure funding. This follows an announcement back in October 2022 that the season would end three races early because of the financial problems it was facing. As regular listeners of the podcast will know, I was a massive supporter of the series, which was giving women a foothold in motorsports, one of the sports so massively dominated by men still. So male-dominated, in fact, that the last time a woman competed on a Formula One Grand Prix grid was a year before Sue Barker and Virginia Wade faced off in San Francisco, and that was back in 1976. What the W Series was doing was funding 19 women to compete in motorsport because funding is the big thing here. Motorsport is so expensive to get into and it's hard for anyone to get funding. We all know that funding is even harder to get when you don't look like the people doling it out. And that is before you think about any of the other barriers to participation. What it also did was give those women competing the opportunity to earn points to qualify for F1. And those points are very hard to come by if you're not racing in the big leagues, which obviously you're not doing if you don't have the backing, etc. The vicious circle perpetuates. And obviously backroom staff have lost their jobs as well. Harry Shinners, one of the joint administrators, said that all available options to allow the series to restart are being explored and that they are actively seeking expressions of interest in the business and assets of the company. Apparently Lewis Hamilton is a fan, so maybe he'll chip in a few quid. It's not all bad news, though. The series has been responsible for launching the careers of some now household names, notably three-time champion Jamie Chadwick, who I spoke to on this podcast a couple of times. She's now racing in the States in the Indy NXT series. Fingers crossed that she can get those F1 points that she needs. I think the W Series can probably also take credit for the launch of F1's All-Female Academy 2, which is going to get going later this year. So, yeah, sad news, very sad news. But, you know... some big gains made as well. Okay, let's end with some undeniably good news. I've been wanging on about it for a couple of weeks, so a little update for you. It's a case of better late than never here. The BBC and ITV have agreed a deal with FIFA to broadcast the Women's World Cup, which starts on July the 20th. That deal was agreed on June the 14th, so uh, yeah, five weeks before kickoff. Yikes. The good news is 
and I think this is different to the last World Cup, all 64 matches will be broadcast on either the BBC or ITV, as is the case during the Men's World Cup, and the final will be shown on both. I think normally you have to do some sort of online red button dickery if you want to watch anything other than the England or, you know, home nations matches. So this is great news for anyone who likes football, but especially for anyone in the UK who is supporting a team outside of England or the Republic of Ireland, who normally get a bit of a short shrift during these tournaments. Okay, that is all from me this week, and I will be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated, Gabon Surprise, Atlantic Sudden, Canadian Thrust. Is that a list of our favourite sex positions or is it something else, Mickey Noonan, who chose this week's film? <laughs> I like that. I like it that that's where your brain went. Fair dues, Hannah. <laughs> this week we watched 1983 Cold War science fact techno thriller War Games a film that takes almost two hours to deliver the message, spoiler, no one really wins in a nuclear war. <laughs> Written by Lawrence Lasker and Walter F. Parks, directed by John Badham and starring a tiny Matthew Broderick and a massive computer, War Games set the box office alight, went down well with the critics and tickled the award season's bottom, grossing $125 million worldwide against a $12 million budget and being nominated for not one, not two, but three Oscars, including Best Original Screenplay. Jen's face looks like she doesn't agree with the Academy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I'm so baffled by that. Okay. Didn't win any though, Jen. That's known as Shakespeare in love face. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> are you going to do the Gwyneth Paltrow speech again, please, Hannah? You are in pink today, so it would work. Yeah. Just thinking about me doing the Gwyneth Paltrow speech is enough for me to just start blubbing uncontrollably, so <laughs> maybe I'll give it a go. It wasn't an easy route to successful war games, and the road to making it was paved with worries over an implausible plot, fired and rehired writers, and a change of director 12 days into the shoot. Goodbye, Martin Bress. Hello, John Badham. Badham's previous super hit was 1977's Saturday Night Fever and he went on to direct three other films that were on a fairly regular rotation in the mini Noonan household. Short Circuit, Stakeout, and Bird on a Wire. Any thoughts on those three films? I loved Short Circuit when I was younger. Short Circuit? Not as good as Short Circuit 2. It's one of the very few cases where a sequel is actually better than the original. I'm surprised that there hasn't been more chat about um, Fisher Stevens in recent times, but yeah, that's it. That's, that's all I've got on Short Circuit. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting choice to cast him as a, an Indian man, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It was an interesting choice. And by interesting, I mean wrong. It was a wrong choice. Back to war games. Though obviously computers have got a whole lot smaller in the past 40 years, the film remains catnip for AI doomsters. It'll kill us all, I tell you! Its influence at the time, though, was pretty remarkable, actually. Major news media focus on the potential for the war game scenario to exist in reality. And this focus contributed to the creation of the first US federal internet policy, the Counterfeit Access Device and Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1984. They made that title catchy. <laughs> then POTUS, Ronald Reagan's interest in the film, he was quite a fan, led to the first presidential directive on computer security. And kind of inevitably, it did inspire several computer games. 
So one of all games Oscar nominations, brace yourself, Jen, was for cinematography. And while the 1980s remains probably the most decade of any decade, <laughs> its aesthetic can be seen again and again in retro focus series such as The Americans and Stranger Things. Okay, fun fact. I mean, I say fun, but it does involve a murder. John Lennon was very interested in the role of Stephen Falcon, but was murdered while the script was in development. Potentially, this explains the Ali Sheedy line, what an amazing looking man, when she sees a video of Falcon <laughs> playing with his kids. <laughs> Actually, no, absolutely nothing explains that line, which is weird as fuck. Fun fact too. I mean, again, I say fun, uh, but it does involve a neo-Nazi. When David's dad applies butter to a slice of bread before wrapping it around his corn on the cob, it's a move lifted from one of the neo-Nazi subjects of Park's 1975 documentary, The California Reich. And I'm going to finish with fun fact three. Genuine fun. Joshua the computer is voiced by John Wood, who plays Falcon. Baden got Wood to read the lines backwards, which is why he has got that slightly flatter intonation that we recognise from computer voices. Yeah. Interesting. Isn't it? That's the only fun one. The others are a bit like, oh. Right, so, Hannah, I know you've seen it before, so I'm going to come back to you in a moment. But, Jen, was this one you've watched before? No, never. I wondered if it might have been uh, one that your brother's picked up, because it's quite Boy's Own Adventure. Yeah, it's 1983, so my eldest brother would have been like three and a half when that came out, so he would have been like seven by the time it made it to like VHS or whatever. Uh, yeah. So we're probably a little bit young for it. Yeah. I had a feeling it might have slipped under your radar, actually. Yeah. Hannah DeLevy, when did you yeah. first see World Games and how many times have you seen it since? Well, I've seen it this time and the first time that I saw it. So this oh. was my, only my second viewing. I don't know. Probably when it came out on video. I don't think we went to see it at the cinema. And it was interesting because I was quite a nervy kid about nuclear war mm -hmm. so it did play into that but also i have never in my entire life ever had any interest in computers so it was also i remember it being slightly not boring that's not the word but i i, I just had no interest in any of the sort of early techie stuff i don't mean that this film is boring but i just think computers just as a whole bored me so i wasn't really expecting to like it but then i also thought i might like it and I can't even really remember what I thought of it, but I do have some quite strong opinions now. <laughs> okay, I'm excited. I am excited. Yeah. I remember it feeling quite futuristic when yes. I watched it. Yeah. And I, it must have been kind of when it came out on VHS, but it was also on telly a lot. So I've seen this quite a lot as a kid and not mm. again since. I think there's things about it that you look at now and you're like, oh yeah, that is sort of like how the internet works uh, 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 I mean you've both jumped to the assumption that the things I'm going to say are bad and I actually have loads of really positive things to say about this no film. sorry that was just an observation about the, the futuristicness of it rather than like yeah. than assuming you were going to say something bad when you said Mickey it would have seemed quite futuristic and I was like well yeah also you know that's obviously where the uh, cast of the uh, Mirror Group, whatever they were called at the time, got their phone hacking uh, props <laughs> from. So, uh, you know, well done. Well done. You've inspired some real uh, real good stuff. And probably some good stuff too. Yeah. Well, we yeah, will get yeah, to that. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the plot. It's the early 1980s. The new Cold War is afoot. But during the surprise nuclear attack drill at NORAD's military base, it turns out some controllers aren't willing to blow the world into oblivion. 
Don't worry, everyone. If we mostly take out the human element, super smart computer Whopper can make sure missiles get fired when the president deems necessary. Can I just briefly interrupt and say, you say some guys. Those guys are John Spencer and Michael Madsen. Yeah. Who in like know? really, really early roles. <laughs> who looks like fan art of himself. <laughs> yeah. I, he looked quite like Brian Dehaney. I had to look it up and I'm like, is that Brian Dehaney? No, I can't say his name. Dehaney? Dehaney. Dehaney. Dehaney from Cocoon. Yeah. And then I looked at when does Cocoon have a birthday? We've got another two years to wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to How Rated or Dated Works. <laughs> Over in Seattle, David Lightman, that's Matthew Broderick, is a whiz kid obsessed with computer games. And he's also a hacker, although that wasn't a term in many people's vocab at the time. Looking for a new game to play and a way to impress aerobics fixated schoolmate Jennifer, that's Ali Sheedy. He connects with a system that doesn't identify itself, but does offer a list of games including chess, poker, Falcon's Maze and global thermonuclear war. (laughs) Pretty sure I had a box compendium with the same sort of office. (laughs) Bums though, David needs a password and even he can't hack his way in. He consults some fellow hackers. Nice to see Eugene from Greece following this natural timeline there. He suggests a backdoor password, probably based on the Falcon listed in the games. Bingo! Stephen Falcon was an early artificial intelligence researcher and his dead son's name, Joshua, gets David in. He immediately challenges Joshua to a game of global thermonuclear war with David as the Russians. Joshua is well up for it and starts a simulation that briefly convinces Norad military personnel the actual Soviet nuclear missiles are inbound. Bums, though, David hasn't taken out the trash, so he has to stop the game to get on with his chores. At least, he thinks he stopped the game. Joshua and Whopper have other ideas and continue to convince the military personnel at Norad that the Ruskies are attacking. Believing David to be a Russian spy, he's arrested by feds, but he escapes really very fucking easily and, with Jennifer's help, tracks down Stephen Falcon, that's John Wood. Falcon's not really up for saving the world, but somehow, and I use that word because I'm genuinely not sure how, he becomes (laughs) convinced that he will do so. Once they're back at Nard, Falcon makes a terrible speech that somehow, and I use that word because I'm really not actually sure how, manages (laughs) to convince a whole room of chaps who were bang up for firing all of their missiles to instead just wait and see whether a lot of people die or not. (laughs) They don't, phew, hooray, call off the missiles. Bums, though, Joshua slash Whopper will not stop playing the AI scamp. Naturally, as David has accidentally made Joshua initiate World War Three, only David can stop Joshua from setting off World War Three with a game of noughts and crosses, or tic-tac-toe, as the Americans would have it. This results in a long string of draws and a realisation about no-win scenarios. Whopper applies the same logic to global thermonuclear war. Well saved! Woo! Excited. It's exciting. So, it's nearly two hours long, and it felt quite long to me, but I think it packs quite a lot in. Yeah, agreed. I don't find anything that's sort of computery to be that interesting. So, it had to have a nuclear war, like the stakes had to be really fucking high (laughs) for me to give a shit. But yeah, it does. I actually think it's, in parts, total tosh, but in other parts, I think... It seems really strangely relevant still today. That was going to be my next question. Do we think Mm. it's still relevant today? Absolutely, yes. I think the idea that teenage boys can wreak havoc around the world from their bedrooms is a constant fear. I mean, 
I think hacking. teenage girls are in on the hacking act too now. So yeah, uh, yes, but obviously, yeah, I was working backwards as in what this film says that still says it. Yeah, so yes, yeah. obviously, every so often we have a panic about nuclear stuff. Still, you know, and indeed Russia. What are North Korea up to? What are Russia up to? You know that stuff that still exists, and I think. Especially, especially today, when we're talking about chat, GPT, and things like that, you know, there is a fear that computers will come to know too much and replace us. Our robot Or kill us. Yeah. yeah. They may dance really well, but when are they going to kill us? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Boston Dynamics. So, yeah, I think loads of it, loads of it is, is still really relevant. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, there's, well, there's stuff in the news about hacking all the time. There's always, like, big companies being hacked and people's private details mm. being you know used for whatever nefarious purposes but it also kind of reminds me a bit of every now and again there'll be a story about a boy who's been you know like usually a sort of neurodivergent boy who's been arrested for espionage or whatever because he's been taking pictures of planes and, and that kind of thing it sort of reminded me of those kind of things as well I don't know it's yeah I think it's I think it seems really relevant I did think two hours was a touch too long. Mm. Some people really need the message that nuclear war is a no-win situation rammed home, though, in fairness. <laughs> and what would they have cut? The pterodactyl scene? Fucking love the dinosaurs bit. <laughs> also, I wondered how you both... And it's quite a big question, so feel free to just give me your the summary of your thoughts. And that is, do you trust computers? Because we live our lives even more so on them now than 40 years ago. Like, it's just all the time. They're in our pockets. Well, no, because I think anything anything technological that you come to depend on in that way, then obviously there's a lot of shit that could go wrong, as we find out on an almost weekly basis. So no, not really. I guess it's not really computers. It's more like the people who manipulate the use of computers and, and yeah. technology, I guess. I'm not even sure I trust my own laptop, to be honest. I think the power <laughs> dynamic is off given that I own it. I've got to say to listeners that Hannah's laptop is a dick. <laughs> it's always updating when she doesn't want it to update. Yeah, and it just does things of its own accord. Sometimes I go and make a cup of tea and it's like, oh, I'll put in some updates. <laughs> you weren't planning on doing anything over the next three hours, were you? Um, I, I always get really frustrated when it tells me, which it doesn't often do, but sometimes it will tell me I don't have permission to do something. I'm like, what the fuck? I own you. <laughs> I think I own you. It's also like, you know, a lot of the problems that we have in society at the moment, maybe not a lot, but well, some of the problems that we have in society at the moment, you know, like we're always talking about the online world or whatever being like a big issue for lots and lots of different reasons. And, you know, legally, it's a fucking minefield for across loads of different areas. And I think we have made this thing, the internet, I guess, um, it is growing much faster, much quicker. It is changing things a lot quicker than we can actually as humans keep up with. I realise that makes me sound quite old and uh, con- like tinfoil hat-like, but I just think it's <laughs> it's moving so quickly, we cannot keep up with this amazing brain we've right. essentially made. And that is causing all sorts of problems. And I guess you could say in a way that like this film kind of foresees that a little bit, maybe. Yeah, totally captures it. And also, Joshua has no empathy. He doesn't have human emotions as such, you know. He no. looks at everything ruthlessly, logically, and all of that. And I think when you live predominantly online, which a lot of people do, 
you actually start to lose those things. Yeah, it's a disconnect. Yeah. From the real world and the online world. There's a massive disconnect yeah. for sure, yeah. And they are meshed now, those two worlds, and yet we do keep referring to them as if they're separate things when actually mm. more and more they're not. Having spoken to Susie Madigan about AI recently and her brilliant blog, The Machine Race, she very kindly sent me a copy of 12 Bytes, which is a series of essays about artificial intelligence by Jeanette Winterson. Jeanette Winterson, Jen. Who I love, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's beautiful because obviously it is complicated. It's it's very complicated if you are not into computers, but Winterson makes it kind of easy to understand, mm. which is you know useful for someone like me. And the next... So the Industrial Revolution was huge in terms of human progress. And I'm putting progress in inverted commas because it was also a lot of damage as well. But that is part and parcel of progress. But it took decades. And the internet, which is our next bit of progress, did not. Mm. It was a matter of years, like a, a few years. And the next one is probably going to be transhumanism. Whereas, you know, people are already getting bits of computers put in their body so that they last longer. And where's that going to go? And obviously, war games is much, much more basic than that. You only need to look at the what is this font to tell that, right? <laughs> and that font is yeah. 80s computer byte. Yeah. But I think it is really prescient in how fast something can go wrong. Well, in a lot of ways, the fact that it looks like that helps prove the point you're making. Yes. That's how far we've come on yeah. since that's what they envisaged high tech to be, you know, at a point where I was, in which I was alive. When they're like, this is the computer room and it looks like a laundrette. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. This is amazing. And Whopper takes up like a garage size unit. The fact that now we literally have them in our pockets is incredible. Yeah, but it's mad, isn't it? Can you imagine like if you had known when you were like, I don't know, if I'd known when I was like eight, when I watched like Back to the Future 2 or whatever, that we would have been carrying around these little computers in our pocket where we could just at any point just stop and like, you know, search anything we wanted, find the answers to anything immediately, communicate with people all around the world, all the stuff that we can do on our phone. Like you literally would have been like, we will also be wearing silver like shell suits and mm. flying hoverboards. Like mm-hmm. the idea of it would have been so mad to comprehend within my lifetime. It's it's nuts. Well hoverboards exist as well. They're just you know, yeah, they're they not do, our main they? mode of transport, but they absolutely exist. And I think the difference with Joshua Whopper is Joshua thinks it works stuff out. I was going to say he, because that's how compelling it is as a character. Mm. It works stuff out, and that's kind of where we are. can only work stuff out that has been inputted, and that is the bit that makes this all slightly less terrifying, and I'm talking about the modern world. It's like they can only do what has been inputted, and while there's obviously lots of bias that goes into what's being inputted, which causes problems now, it means that this whole like robot overlords are around the corner is probably not going to happen. But Joshua does start to learn to think, right? At the end. Do you think? Have yes. I misread that? I don't no, know. No, I mean, yes. Well, he learns a lesson. So mm. what is that if not thinking? It's teaching itself. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's. I think it's incredibly prescient for something mm. in, in the 80s. Yeah. Length aside... Did you like it? And we've all heard that question before. No, it wasn't for me. I don't, it was too... But there were bits of it that made me laugh out loud, like when she says, oh, he's 41, and you're like, yeah, the fucking rest of me. Like, uh, <laughs> he makes the, the kids from Greece look like kids. Like, <laughs> when he's first on the computer, and he's like tapping away, and he's doing the grades, and they start playing this music, and it's like... Boop, boop, 
beep, beep. That's technically the Krypton Factor theme tune, but whatever. Uh, it's a similar vibe. Uh, and you're just like, what is that music? Is that meant to be the computer? I don't know, but I'm here for it. I love it. Details like that I was really into. But aside from that, too much technology. It's not really my thing. Yeah, I mean, it's rare I say this. I 100% agree with Jen. That's that's <laughs> exactly my thoughts on it in a nutshell. Yeah, it was fun to visit the 80s for a couple of hours. Although, I, you know, it would have been better if it would have been an hour and a half or something. <laughs> always, um, just always. Apart from the fact, like I say, it's central theme. But if this falls into science fiction, then like I say, science fiction central theme always is quite an interesting moral question mm-hmm. or, you know, mm-hmm. snapshot of whatever. Um, yeah, but I mean, I don't think I'll ever sit down and watch it again. So take that as your answer. Science fact. Mm. Mostly science fact. Yeah. We're standard issue, so I'm going to chuck this question in. She's pretty much the only female character, although it was nice to see the one in the war room. There was one woman knocking about in the war room. So let's talk Jennifer briefly. Does she bring anything to the table? No. I can't remember a single thing about her. She loves I'm aerobics, Hannah, and honest. she runs like a goon. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder she was sweaty. What were her arms doing? Uh, no, she doesn't. She just, uh, I, I was just left thinking, Jennifer's a very of its time name, isn't it? How do you think you'd fare in an aerobics competition? Well, that can't possibly be to me, Both Jen. of you, any of us. She, well, I did actually, that's the only other thing I thought about her was when she was doing her stretches. She's very limber, isn't she? Very limber. Which is a weird detail to include. Actually, why why is she aerobics obsessed other than just to be like, hey, did you notice this is the because 80s? Because it's the 80s. Did you it notice this is the 80s? the most decade of any decade. <laughs> totally. <laughs> okay, I don't have much more to add to what you have both said. It was interesting to revisit. Nostalgia had lied to me and I remembered it as a much more fun film and it's actually not very fun at all. It is actually quite dull, but I think the premise is still very interesting and oddly relevant. Can I just add, for anyone who hasn't watched this, that, that list of things that I read out were actually a list of hundreds and hundreds of weird types of war that kept flashed up on the screen at the end of it. Quite a lot of which were Icelandic-based. I don't know why. I thought you were reading the shipping news, Hannah. It had quite a shipping news <laughs> vibe to it. Well, the polls. Um, mm, and yeah. scores. Actually, I do have one last question. If you were offered a list of games and you could play any games, would you go for global thermonuclear war? No. I mean, I will say, contemporaneously, the only computer I had access to was one that my auntie and uncle owned. And there was a queue of us waiting to play that. And all it had was Space Invaders and Pong. Was it a Spectrum, Hannah? I don't know. I don't know anything about computers. So I would say that possibly I would have just played the first one on the list because it was just (laughs) so exciting. So exciting. Yeah, I don't think we'd destroy the world or potentially destroy the world. I think we'd be fine just going, oh, poker on a computer game that I've queued for an hour for. Amazing. Let's do that. (laughs) Rated or dated? I don't disagree with anything you just said, Mickey. Uh, But yeah, it's a a massive dated. Yeah, massive. But it's the 80s, so it's, it's impossible not to, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I genuinely don't know because it's not rated and it is dated, but it's also not dated. So... Shall we play a game, Hannah? (laughs) Go on then. (laughs) Rated. Okay, interesting. I am actually going to say rated as well, even though it is fully comprehensively dated because it's so 80s. But that central theme 
Still yeah. stands. I think you could make a version of War Games today and there would be very little change apart from the size of stuff and it would stand <laughs> up. Yeah. And less electronic music. More electronic music, Jen. All of it AI generated. <laughs> More pterodactyls. I'd, I'd like an extended dinosaur sequence, please. I'll take a gab I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> you made that one sound like an ice cream. <laughs> it does, not it? Yeah. Who's next? What are we watching? Yeah, we're going to stay in 1983, in the most decade of decade, as Mickey said, and watch 1983's Educating Rita. Oh. Nice bit of Julie Walters. Standard Issue for All Women.